0: Well, in the reading corner today, I've got the Queen of Scary with me. I'm feeling a little bit frightened. Jennifer Killick, who is the author of Crater Lake, Crater Lake Evolution, and a new series, Dreadwood. It's great to meet you, Jennifer. And you too. Thank you for having me, Nikki. So definitely the Queen of Scary. I had a few frights reading this book. Um, All will become clear as we tell our listeners a little bit more about it. But to kick us off, perhaps tell us about the story in your words. Okay, so
1: Dreadwood is the story of a group of Year 7 students who at the beginning of the story are not friends and um, they don't really know each other very well but they've all been put into a Saturday detention at their school which is called Dreadwood High so they all turn up on a Saturday for this detention because they all were involved in a big incident in the lunch hall one l- lunch time um, so they go to school and they're going to be just litter picking and boring boring things to be doing on a Saturday that they'd much rather not be doing but then things start to become a little bit strange. So they're locked in the school. There's a couple of quite creepy ish caretakers, and their teacher, Mr. Canton, is there with them. Mr. Canton disappears. They hear like a terrible scream, and they soon find out that actually they're not there by coincidence. They've all been brought to that detention because somebody's very upset over things that they have done in the past. Um, And this person or people want revenge. And there's something growing underneath the school that is very horrible um, and is basically hunting them. And then it becomes like the game The Floor is Lava that children like to play. You can't step on the ground because if you step on the ground, uh, you're in danger. So they have to kind of survive this detention. They have to learn to work together. They have to work out what it is that they've done that has brought them to this point and try to then move forward from that so it's very much about them accepting responsibility for their actions but knowing that that doesn't define them Uh, for working together for building friendships is really important part of it and obviously just the general running away from horrible (laughs) monsters and trying to survive as well so it's really really fun to write um, because it's just that lovely mix of of scary and and humor that I just really enjoy writing in my stories
0: I want to start with the four characters so the story's being told by Angelo yes uh, and there are four characters it's like an ensemble piece and yeah. when you have four characters like that they have to have very different qualities and characteristics so tell us briefly about each of them and what's special
1: about them okay lovely so yeah main character is Angelo and Angelo I had in my mind for a long time I wanted a character who is quite a loner, who sees school as a waste of time because he would rather be out in the world doing things, because I think there are a lot of people like that. And actually, he's kind of loosely based on my husband, strangely enough, because I first met my husband in year seven at secondary school, and he was very aloof, always standing separate from other people, looking like he didn't care about what was going on almost hostile because he was so aloof and I didn't know him back then but we met many many years later after school and now I do know him and I understand why he was like that but I didn't understand at the time so it was kind of based on that of there being somebody who nobody really understands think he's probably bad news a bit of trouble but actually there's a whole world underneath there that's going on um he comes from a very poor uh his family don't have much money, so they struggle to have enough money for food, to keep a roof over their heads. They're happy, loving family, but they, it's it's hard to make ends meet. Um, he has a little brother that he cares for a lot while his parents are working. So he has huge responsibilities, and he just would rather be helping with the family, going out into the world, earning money than being at school. And it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot for him to be at school every day. But Angelo, you know, he's lovely. He's so smart. He knows a lot about the world. He watches lots of documentaries, loves science and nature, and all those things kind of help him in the story. So that's Angelo. There is also Hallie. Hallie is quite an angry, an angry person. She's very fiery. She fights for what she thinks is right. Social justice is really important to her. She likes to stand up for minority groups. And when she sees something that she thinks is wrong, she will go at it. Fight, 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 like claw and tooth. She's so she gets in trouble because she loses her temper Um, and she she's not scared to get in trouble either if she sees something wrong she doesn't care about the consequences she'll just go in and fight so she's there for that reason but she always has these good intentions and although she's so quick to fire up it's because she has this really strong sense of justice so in the situation that they find themselves in you know she's a great person to have on your side um she just needs to kind of put more thought into things before she acts Um, and sometimes the things that she does do without thinking do lead to unpleasant consequences both for her and the group but that's obviously part of the story so won't give too much away then we have Naira who grew up in the same estate that Angelo grew up in but she is also from a very impoverished background um, she lives just with her mum. She's an only child. But her mum sees Naira as a way out of out of this life. And she wants Naira to have a better life than she's had. So she puts a lot of pressure on Naira to be, you know, top of the class, perfect grades. So Naira is always she's a real overachiever, but she's always trying to be better and better and better. And it puts so much pressure on her. And she just always comes across as kind of cold and unkind and too competitive. But again, we find out that underneath that, she's lovely. She's just got this, this huge amount of pressure on her. And her her how smart she is is really helpful. She's also very kind of physically fit. And that also helps. So she's another character who, again, I think with all of them, really, they come across as these not particularly pleasant people if you don't know them. And when you do know them, you find out, obviously, they're lovely. And then the final one, who is my favourite to write because he is <laughs> he's so funny, um, is called Gustav. And he's a bit of a kind of random, crazy. Um, Angelo kind of describes him as really a really chaotic person. You never know what to expect from him. He's quite unpredictable. Again, he doesn't care about getting in trouble. He'll do anything for a laugh. Um, so he kind of acts out all the time, shouts things out. Um, makes jokes at the expense of whatever's going on around him but again we find out with him that he has um, a hidden disability um, which has shaped the way that he is and is a huge part of his life that he's kept secret and you know it's a big part of why he is the way that he is but he's a brilliant boy he all of them loyal they work hard they're willing to fight for each other Um, And I just love through the story how we get from these four strangers who don't think much of each other to these this massive, really tight bond that they build between them. And because Dreadwood is a series as well, it's really lovely that I get to continue that into into the next books as well, because I think friendships are so tricky. I've always struggled with friendships through my whole life. So I think that's why I really focus on them. When I'm writing, I love having these groups and I love finding these bonds and these these ways that they can get along and these ways that they can be amazing friends, even though you wouldn't expect them to be. So yeah, that's a huge part of the story for me.
0: It's really interesting because that's one of the things that appealed to me was the the growth and the development, the coming together as a group of friends. And what you said there about angelo and education because i just want to read the opening sentence okay. of the story which is there aren't many worse things than being in school but being in school on a saturday is one of them now as a former teacher <laughs> the minute i read that i thought what do you mean there aren't many <laughs> things worse than being in school And I thought in a way, you know, when I started reading, I thought, oh, this is just getting down with the kids and pretending school's a horrible place. But actually, that's not what you're doing in this book. No, absolutely (laughs) not.
1: No. And I think because the the teacher, especially Mr. Canton, he's he's such an important part of the whole dreadful world. And he is when I first thought him up, I was going to make him because he does try to be down with the kids very much. And they all cringe at him all the time and the things he says. I thought, you know, he was going to be this really irritating character. But actually, he is, for me, he's the symbol of of everything that is good about school. He's someone who's there for the children every day. He's the person that they need in their lives that maybe they're not getting elsewhere. And school becomes and he becomes like a really safe place for them. So, yeah, no, it's not about um, it's not about taking down school. I just think some children do see school as a bit of a hostile place or a waste of time and it's about them finding out that actually there's so much to be gained not just from what you learn in school but also like the social groups and and everything else that you do there and i think hopefully they all as they go through they all kind of get more happy to be at school and around and they definitely develop a lot more trust in teachers and the people around them that are looking out for them
0: Mm. I do want to get on a little bit further to explore because it's a horror story and you we won't get that from our conversation necessarily so far but perhaps there's an important point here about good horror always being about something else underneath the surface you can't really survive on a story that's just about shocks and thrills no you can't you have to and that's
1: the thing when I think up my stories quite often it does start with just a concept or a premise and I think wow that's brilliant I love it how exciting and then I'm like okay what's the actual plot going to be you do need to kind of have stuff going on it needs to be subplots and deeper meanings and more to it than just you know a bunch of kids running around getting jump scares although that is incredibly fun Um, so yeah the horror as well I think when you put children or you put characters in those situations, it brings certain things out of people. And actually, yeah, in real life, as much as in, in fiction, putting people in scary situations, you get to see sides of people that you wouldn't normally. So in Dreadwood, the horror does, brings out the side of the children that they've not shown up until then. Mm. And that makes it really helpful. And also for the humour as well, I think horror and humour go together very well because, you know, you can use the humour to diffuse situations. And for me, whenever I'm scared in real life, with my family or whoever, we always try to make a joke and we always try to laugh laugh at it if we can. And it helps you so much when you're scared, but you can laugh. It gives you that courage. It gives you that time to to breathe and to calm. And it's, it's so important. And I think so just having the scares, but adding the humour and then all of that, just bringing out these brilliant personalities of these children, mm. it's just, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice how it all comes
0: together. So we haven't talked about your baddies and no. they're pretty scary, it has to be said. They're called the Latchets. Latchets, yep, they are. Uh, Mr. Latchit, the caretaker, and his perhaps even scarier wife. <laughs> She's Tell us a bit about them. <laughs> I find villains
1: quite difficult to write because I think it's really easy to kind of slip into cliche and one-dimensional villains. So I wanted my villains to have quite a complex backstory which you don't know through a lot of dreadwood and without giving away spoilers um, is a really important part of who who they are and why they're doing what they're doing so I wanted the horrible things in Dreadwood to be kind of science-based because I love stuff that I think oh that could actually happen even though obviously it's incredibly far-fetched don't want any scientists (laughs) reading and going no actually Jennifer that could never happen that's impossible but I love that kind of based in science thing but I wanted them to be kind of classic horror chilling as well because I know a lot of children probably you know year six sort of age Probably haven't read any horror yet, most of them. But it was just a I just really wanted to bring in kind of classic horror things to start them in the genre without it being so upsetting and terrifying. And the latchets needed to be creepy. I didn't want them to be the same as each other. I needed two distinct characters. And yeah, Mrs. Latchet, just as I was writing her, just became just, just this absolutely horribly creepy, kind of very dark person who has they, they I think with the latchets they have no conscience about what they're doing to the children because they see a different picture and their picture is the picture that's correct so they think what they're doing is right but obviously it's horrible and I think you get the sense with them hopefully that there's no length to which they wouldn't go to hurt the kids if it suited them to do so and I think you need that
0: so there's a bit in the story where the children first encounter Mrs Latchett. They've yes. gone to the cottage. Yes. I'd love to hear that bit. Okay, okay,
1: right. So yeah, we're reading it. It is right at the start because I like to jump into the horror very, very quickly in my stories. They have gone to the Latchett's cottage because the Latchett's, they're groundskeepers, but they live on site. Already, Angelo and the others have reason to be suspicious. So instead of going to the front door, they've gone to the back to the fence to try and have a little peer over the fence or through the fence to try and see what's going on before they approach uh, the latchet. So they're at this point, Angelo is looking through a hole in the fence and Mrs. Latchet has come out of the back of the house of the cottage and she's walked down the garden to the chicken coops because the school keeps uh, animals as well. So this is what happens. Mrs Latchit creaks open the door to one of the chicken coops, straining against the wind that wants to keep it shut. She scoops up a chicken and tucks it under her arm, singing gently to it as she closes the door, lowers the latch and follows the stone path further down the yard. At the other end of the yard, there's a crumbling circular stone structure about a metre high and covered with a wooden lid, the thickness of my arm. It looks like an old well. A large tree stump rises from the scraggly grass next to it, an axe resting blade down in the top of the stump. Mrs Latchett stops at the well, cooing at the chicken like it's a human baby and stroking its rust-coloured feathers. My brain feels slow and sluggish. I can't think what she's up to. I try to calculate the possibilities as I watch her squeeze the chicken tighter under her arm so hard that she must be hurting it, while her other hand takes hold of the lid of the well. It's huge and heavy. It must weigh 50 kilos. And I know she can't possibly lift it, but she does. She pulls it off like it's nothing and places it carefully beside her, leaning up against the well. Underneath is a gaping black hole that she leans over and looks into, peering down like it goes deep under the ground. She grabs the chicken with her right hand again, dangling it upside down by its feet, still singing that wretched tune. The chicken flaps and struggles, and just as I latch onto an awful thought, the idea unfurling in my mind like a a tentacled monster oozing from a cave, she raises it higher. Then with an actual whoop of glee, she throws it into the well. I almost cry out. What the hell was that? Hallie tugs my arm. Angelo. Dude, Gus says, what happened? "'Just a minute,' I hiss back, "'my heart thudding so hard it makes me feel sick. "'And though I expect an argument, "'they fall silent and wait while I watch. "'Mrs Latchit gazes down into the well, "'her face lit up, "'making her look like an entirely different person. "'So long, little chicken!' "'She giggles like a toddler, clapping her hands. "'I gasp and drop to the ground, "'crouching with my hands on the floor to steady me, "'trying to understand what I've just seen. "'What is it?' Nira says. "'Would you move? I'm looking now.' and she pushes me with her foot so she can stand in front of the hole. ''Are you okay?'' Hallie crouches down next to me. ''There's something weird going on,'' I whisper, noticing an absence of noise that was there a moment ago. The wind is building, rushing past my ears and making trees creak, but it's quieter than it was. ''I can't even see her,'' Naira hisses, and that's when I realise that Mrs Latchett has stopped humming. I stand up. ''Can I look?'' I say. Naira shrugs and steps away from the hole. I put my eye to it again, seeing everything in the Latchett's yard as it was when I last looked. The chicken coops, the tree stump, the well with its lid leaning against the side. Except Mrs Latchett has gone. I carefully push myself against the fence, my eye straining to see the furthest corners of the garden. She can't have just disappeared. I swear out loud as my view is suddenly obscured by an eye on the opposite side of the hole, watching me back.
0: <laughs> and I, I did confide in you earlier that uh, when I was young, my dad used to look through the whole of an LP. <laughs> I might have been three or four at the time. And even though I could see him, it terrified me, this eye looking through the hole in the record. There is something about an eye looking at you, that is
1: just horrible and creepy every time. And obviously, as an older person who has watched many horror movies and many creepy things and seen it done so many times, still frightens me. So I really enjoyed writing that scene. And, you know, it was fun to write because it's something that kind of
0: does keep me up at night as well. While you're talking about horror films, mm-hmm. there are lots of places in the story where you are introducing tropes from well-known uh, yes. films. Tell us about some of the things that you've seen, which we hope the readers won't have seen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, So I am quite a
1: wimp, really, with horror films. So when I was about 13 I went to a sleepover and they put on it the original it Stephen King's it and I couldn't even finish it I had to leave the sleepover before anyone had even gone to sleep and go home because I was so frightened and that really kind of colored so many of the years after that, because so I used to do a paper round in the mornings and I couldn't walk over drain covers, for example. I would never walk over a drain cover in case it came out to grab me and like pull me down a drain. But with it, what I found was really powerful was the suspense. It was the build-up. It was knowing there's something out there lurking that you didn't really understand. So that's definitely something that I try to do in my stories is build that suspense. The time before you show what the monster actually is to kind of build it up and build it up and make it so that it's just this horrible presence. So there's definitely that. More recently, I love Stranger Things and that definitely has shaped my writing. I just think that show is got everything because it's got the heart it's got the last bit it's got that horror um I also think it's really good for the kind of the disgusting things as well so I try to put a little bit I've got to be careful with the gore my editor always says keep it pg Jennifer keep it pg mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does have some of the bloody stuff and the icky gooey monstery stuff which I like to bring in as well and it's just I'm such a scaredy cat, and everything that I've seen and read, and things that have happened in real life, like those stories when you're at school and there's supposed to be a dose in the toilets. And this actually comes into the second Dreadwood book. There's a, a scene in, in the school toilets, in the toilet cubicles. And there's a scene in um, Scream, in the Scream movie, where I think it's Nev Campbell, she's in the toilets. And then you just see this cloak, this horrible black cloak underneath the crack. And you're like, oh, no, there's someone in the toilets. It's those moments that have really stayed in my brain. And those are the tr- moments that I try to kind of put into the um, my writing, but obviously without them being so horrifying that the children can never walk over a drain cover again until they're an adult, <laughs> because
0: that's not fun for anyone. There's another thing that comes from film that I think is really frightening, and that's to do with sound. And you've got a soundtrack actually running through this, you tell us quite early on where it says that, you know, a tune I can't quite place. And I know that tune's going to be important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I do workshops with children, I always say when you're setting scenes, you need to use all of your senses. You need to just put teeny little details in. So a sound or a smell, just things, senses because it will just make your readers just be in that scene with you and everything comes so much more alive. And the tune, yes, is very important. And there's the the scream as well in the first chapter. I just think if you can put those details in, it does bring it to life. And it adds that extra layer of, of kind of tension that you don't get if you're mm. just talking about, yeah, what you can see.
0: You know, what's also interesting about this particular tune is that it it's usually quite innocuous, you mm-hmm. know, kind of a nursery element to it, and again, that's something that we see in horror films—something innocent, something naive. There's nothing more scary than a child, a doll, uh. you know, a nursery tune. Why? Why do you think that is?
1: Taking things that should be lovely and comforting and make us feel better and safe things and making them frightening is—it just is really effective, and you don't. Then you don't even need to be to graphic or gory or anything like that because the scare is just in turning those things on their heads and and making them into things of nightmares.
0: Mm. I want to talk a little bit about writing uh, this kind of story where you have to build in quite a lot of foreshadowing because that's partly what's building the suspense here. Does that involve quite a lot of working it in afterwards?
1: No, I do. I just, I plan really thoroughly, not so much on paper, but whenever I start a new story, I'll spend months just thinking it through. And I'll know before I start writing the big, major key things, the key reveals, the key twists, the key action moments. So I know before I start writing that I'm going to need to seed things in. And I think when you, when you write, a lot. It just becomes more instinctive I think anyway. I'm quite lucky because I don't normally have to do too much editing which is lovely because you know oh yeah editing is not my favorite. So I like to make sure that my first drafts are quite complete and not too many plot holes and that all those seeds and foreshadowing is already there. And it's nice with a series as well because then you can do it from book to book. So there are things in book 1 that aren't going to be clear until not even book two, like later on, later on. So, and it's really satisfying as a writer. To I love, I find that lovely. I just love it.
0: Um. So yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of writing. I did want to ask you something about you. I once interviewed Darren Shan. Darren Shans are probably some of the scariest books for upper middle grade that I've ever been terrified by. And then I met him and I interviewed him and we had an interview over hot chocolate and marshmallows and he was very sweet and warm and gentle. Mm -hmm. And then I've, I'm obviously talking to you and you're not at all scary. Why do such lovely people want to write such horror stories? Maybe because
1: I, as I said to you, I'm a wimp. I spend so much of my life being scared of things. And so I'm writing for the people like me who do get scared of things to try and help them to find ways of not being scared, of getting over that, of being brave. And so the children in my stories, I'm never, ever going to have them not win the day. And I love that closure. And I think one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, when I watched it and I left halfway through because I couldn't bear it, I never could really put that to bed until I went back years later and watched the end of the film, and it gave me that closure. So I just think it's my way of dealing with scary things that have happened to me and of maybe helping children to deal with scary things in the world around them. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, killer clowns and and massive spiders, but there's so many scary things in life, and, you know, life is tough. And if my stories can help children to find that courage or to cheer them up or to just get them to be hopeful or help them through something horrible that's going on. The main reason I wanted to to be an author was so that I could do that because mm-hmm. books have done, stories have done that for me all of my life. They've helped me through everything.
0: I read an article once by Charles Sarland, I think it was, it was called What's the Point of Horror? And really interesting talking about particularly the teenage psyche mm-hmm. and probably why so m- many of us read a lot of horror in those years yeah it's because we're finding out who we are what lengths we can go to and yeah. testing the boundaries and so as adults we sometimes look back on that maybe sometimes a bit disparagingly you know what do yes. you want to be reading for that for read something a li- little bit more edifying or a bit more worthy but actually it's serving a really important psychological purpose
1: I think so and also I think They're very good for engaging readers who don't necessarily think of themselves as readers, and that's another massive bonus. And because it's fun, it's like like being on a roller coaster. Actually, I hate roller coasters; I will not go on a roller coaster. But for so many people, they love them because it's that little bit of a scare and it's that bit of an adrenaline rush. And when you're competing with, you know, children playing Fortnite um, with their friends, which is a social thing, but also they're getting that adrenaline rush from playing. I think if you can kind of replicate that feeling within a book, you're going to get so many more children wanting to read which is you know obviously what all of us want mm. so I think yeah definitely um horror is a way in for a lot of people and it's a way of exploring
0: feelings and yeah it's a bit fun well that's a really good place for us to end on such a positive and high note it's been a delight talking to you today Jennifer thank you for having me Nikki